Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Dan received two degrees at the University of California, Santa Cruz, and is clearly one of our alumni. One degree in fine arts and a second in biology. And Dan maintains this combination of creative art and hard science began his cross-disciplinary approach to problem-solving that is the backbone of his work and the seminars he gives. Dan is also, I found out today, a licensed pilot, um, another skill that demands understanding of visual information. Dan is a member of the Arts Division Advisory Board and has become a friend. So I'd like to welcome Dan Rome. Thank you very much. Lewis, thank you. George, Jeff, nice to meet you. Thank you all. And thank all of you for coming. You know, it, it, it really is, I have to tell you, it's an extraordinary pleasure to be able to come back to Santa Cruz in these conditions. I mean, I live up in San Francisco now. After I left school, I moved abroad. I lived in, in Moscow, Russia for several years, and then I moved to New York, and then about six years ago, I moved back to San Francisco. And so it had been many, many years. I was counting the other day, 20-some years since I'd been back to Santa Cruz. And I came down Highway 1 today, and it was just absolutely fantastic. I thank any of you that have, have of course, showed up on a day that is as beautiful as this to come in and, and talk about visual problem solving. I really appreciate your willingness to step out of the sun and come in here and, and, and talk about a couple of things. The, the way I would like to share these ideas with you tonight is I really want to tell two stories and then kind of weave them together. And the, the, the first story is, is a very simple one. The first story is that, you know, we, all of us, are going to save the world, and we are going to save the world with pictures. And I know that sounds incredibly simplistic and probably pretty naive, but I also know that it is absolutely true. That's storyline number one. We are going to solve the world's problems, and we're going to do it with pictures. Storyline number two, then, is that it will be the people that are in this room who are going to be drawing those pictures that are going to save the world. It will be people who have an education in the arts who are going to be the people who are going to be able to figure out how we're going to approach the problems that we face today and solve them. And I know that there are many people who I've kind of represented by this little character down here who's saying, you know, who, who, who are these people? These people who study dance, these people who paint, you know, these people who shoot video, these people who sing or recite poetry or, or act in plays, these people who, you know, saw away on violas. You know, who are these people? Who, who, why would those people be able to say in any way that they're going to play any role in saving the, the world in, in terms of the really concrete, physical problems that we have in front of us? How are those people, how are we going to be able to play a role? We're studying these soft things. What, what, what possible connection can there be between what we do and the really big things that we need to be thinking about? Well, I'll tell you what it is. This is something I have shared around the world, and I, believe, I know this to be true. It really comes down to this. When we have an education in the arts, we have an education that is profoundly unique in terms of how it helps us think about problem-solving. Now, that is not something... I studied painting when I was here at Santa Cruz, and at no point in any class did any professor ever say to me, now we're going to talk about problem solving. But there were professors who made it clear that what we were really trying to do when we were working on something, it doesn't matter what the nature of the artistic project we were working on. When we were working on something in the art, what we were doing is making a set of rules for ourselves. Didn't matter necessarily what they mattered to anybody else. A set of rules, and then we were judging our own work by knowing if we had met the rules that we had set. We were solving problems in a way that was completely different than many people were in other disciplines. It's the fact that we can solve problems in a unique way because of what we've learned in the arts that gives us the ability to really contribute in a really powerful way to the problem solving. So what is problem solving? I mean, I've, I've represented it here as this kind of a black box. I mean, we, we don't really know what problem solving is, especially the kind of problem solving that we do in the arts. Very loose, very fluid, very flexible. 
We don't know exactly what problem solving is, but I think we know what problem solving is not. I want to think for a moment about some of the things that we learned in school before we came to the university. Things that we were learning in middle school and primary school and in high school. Think about the things that we were taught and the things that we were trained to do and the things that we were tested for. And there's a very concrete way we can look at what these things were. I want to talk just for a moment about the old, famous, infamous SAT test. How many people in here have taken the SAT? I would think so. I think you kind of have to take the SAT to get accepted in a university anywhere. So it's interesting because if you think about it, the three and a half hours that we have all spent taking our SAT tests, for most people in their teenage years, that is the most important three and a half hours they're ever going to spend, we are going to spend, in determining our future. Yeah, there's a lot of other things we're going to do. Our extracurricular uh, activities are going to be counted when we're trying to be admitted to university, our grade point average. But if you think about one thing, one block thing that everybody does, is we take the SAT. That is our standard way of judging if someone is ready to go to a university or not. So let's think for a minute about the things that are tested on the SAT. So when we take the SAT, are we tested on logic? No, not really. Are we tested on multidimensional analysis? No. Are we tested on creative problem solving? No. Are we tested on mechanical, conceptual, physical reasoning? No. Are we tested on visual and spatial processing? No. Are we tested on math? Yes. Are we tested on reading? Yes. Are we tested on writing? Yes. That's it. Our ability to do math, our ability to read, and our ability to write are what we have been trained, taught, and now tested to do. But I've got to say this. Having worked with now hundreds of companies around the world, of course learning to read and learning to write is absolutely profound and critical, as is learning to do math. But let me show you a picture. This is a diagram of the, of the latest round of healthcare reform that's being debated continually in the U.S. government. Okay, so which of our skills, our math, reading, or writing skills, is going to help us figure out this problem? Okay, I want you to look at this for a moment and tell me, are you for healthcare reform or against healthcare reform? The tools that most people, most of us have been trained and tested for are not adequate for actually solving the kinds of real-world problems that are out there. We must have some other kind of problem-solving approach, and that's the one that comes from arts. I believe it. We can solve our problems with pictures. I know this is true. I wrote a couple of books about it. The books have done very well, and as, as uh, David was mentioning earlier, in many ways, surprisingly, the books have done extraordinarily well in places outside the United States. It's really interesting, and I'll tell you, I have 26 different language editions of my books, and it's really gratifying to me to look at them, and I can read the pictures in everyone, every single one of those languages exactly the same. The pictures, wonderfully, didn't need to be translated. My background was here. I started here at Santa Cruz, and as David mentioned, I studied biology and fine art. Really interesting thing happened. Is there anybody in here who's ever taken organic chemistry? Are you also in the arts? Are you... Uh, no? What, what, what are you studying? Organic chemistry? Yeah. Okay, biology. Well, that's what I studied, too. Really interesting thing happened, because one of the things... I was on the pre-med track, you know, back in those days, sort of a loosey-goosey pre-med track. Um, and I was uh, taking organic chemistry, and everybody had, had told me before I got into organic chemistry that that was the class that was going to kill me because organic chemistry is so hard. Well, I found that that wasn't the case at all because organic chemistry is nothing more it's, than, than visual. If you can imagine how these atoms fit together, everything makes sense. It's purely visual. So this really crazy connection started to emerge to me between the things that we were learning in biology and the things that we were learning when we were doing painting. How do those things fit together? Since then, I have had this opportunity to work with this incredible array of different businesses and organizations from Boeing, working with the people who are building the 787, to the United States Senate. And I want to share some stories about that with you in particular. It's pretty, pretty interesting stuff that's been happening in, in being able to work in Washington. Doesn't matter what organization I talk to, what group I talk to, I always say the same thing. We can solve our problems with pictures. Nobody believes me. And then until I tell them this, 
They say, people, people say, Dan, you say we can solve our problems with pictures, but you know, what, what problems are you talking about? I mean, really? And what pictures are you talking about? I mean, really? And what people are you talking about? I mean, really, who's going to do this? I like those three questions. I can answer them right now. Which problems are we talking about? Any problem, every problem, any problem that we can articulate at all, we can articulate infinitely more clearly through pictures. And the pictures are not sophisticated. They're not complicated. They don't take years of training. They don't take a degree in painting. They don't require sophisticated computer software to do. If we can draw a square, if we can draw a circle, if we can draw an arrow connecting them, if we can draw a stick figure, make it a happy stick figure, we can draw everything. That's all we need. Any idea that we can conceive of, we can, whether we think we can draw or not, come up with a visual way to describe it. So that third question, who's going to do this? Everybody has the ability to do this. I, want, I just want to share with you one, one little scientific data point, one, one data point out of neurobiology that's pretty fascinating about the power of vision. Imagine that this circle represents our entire neurological capacity for processing sensory information. So it's a fancy way of saying, imagine that circle represents every neuron that we have in our brain that's processing everything that's coming in from the world around us, everything that we know about the world around us. You want to know how many of those neurons are focused on vision? Three-quarters of them. It's estimated now that roughly 60% of our brain is focused on vision. It turns out that by being human, we are pretty much walking, talking, visual processing machines. We have more capacity in our brain dedicated to processing the visual signal than anything else that we do, more than to memory, more than to logical thought, orders of magnitude more than we have to, to, to verbal language processing. We are visual. From the time we're infants, we know how to solve problems by looking at the world around us. I want to share with you a story that kind of proves the point. We're out here in Santa Cruz. I mentioned earlier I had a chance to work with the United States Senate. So I want to fly out here to Washington, D.C., and let's go work with the Senate for a little bit. They had asked me to come out and do a half-day workshop. So this is the new policy committee of the United States Senate. Wanted to do a half-day workshop on visual problem solving. How could we use some of these pictures to help explain complex issues around policy? Well, I don't have a background in politics. So I went and I started to do research because what I really wanted to do was find some examples of really important political decisions that had been started with a simple sketch. I couldn't really find any, but I found something else that I thought was even more interesting that I'd like to share with you. So this is a map of Mount Vernon. Now, Mount Vernon was George Washington's estate. Now, this map was drawn back in 1766. Now, this is a map of George Washington's estate. Would anyone like to guess who might have drawn this map? The hint, of course, is that it was George Washington's estate. Turns out that George Washington drew this map. I didn't know this. George Washington was originally trained as a map maker and a surveyor, and he drew all the time. In fact, his notebooks are full of his sketches. And I thought, this is pretty interesting. Let's go on. So here is a piece of White House stationery. This is actually Oval Office stationery. Some president is drawing a picture of a boat, something that looks like a chessboard, a NATO flag, blockade Cuba in a circle, Castro in a box. Who do you think, what president might have been drawing these pictures? Any idea? JFK. John F. Kennedy was drawing. This, these are the notes that President Kennedy was taking when he was on the phone during the Cuban Missile Crisis back in 1961 when he was on the phone with Premier Khrushchev in the Soviet Union negotiating our way out of nuclear Armageddon. Those are the notes that he was taking, he was drawing. Here's another interesting one. This is from another U.S. president. Someone always manages to guess who might have drawn this. Clearly a president who had a lot on his mind. Anyone want to take a guess who might have drawn this? Yes, someone gets it right. This was Richard Nixon. This was a picture that Richard Nixon had drawn. And, you know, clearly a guy with a lot on his mind. I mean, I think the body language here is pretty telling. You know, he's really got a lot of stuff going on. Here's a very easy one. Who, which president do you think might have drawn these pictures? Absolutely. This is Ronald Reagan. Anybody, ever, anybody in here ever tried to draw a horse? 
Drawing a horse is one of the hardest things ever. And I have to say, that is not a very, that's not a bad horse. Who knew President Reagan had that kind of talent? That page, by the way, was taken from one of President Reagan's notes during one of his cabinet meetings in the second, in the second term of his presidency. Those are the notes that he was taking. Pretty interesting. So I gave the talk at the Senate. They liked it. We had a, a good workshop, very useful. And at the end of it, a guy named Doug Steiger came up to me. And it turns out that Doug is the head of new policy for the, for the Democratic side of the Senate. And Doug said to me, Dan, he said, you know, great presentation. That was a great workshop. I've got the perfect political back-of-the-napkin story for you. And he shared this story with me. And I checked it out, and this is true. This story takes place way back in 1974 when President Ford was in the Oval Office. And this story involves this guy right here. He was an economist at the time, and his name is Arthur Laffer. Now, Arthur Laffer was a very prominent conservative economist. He was, a real, he was real popular in the Ford administration, very conservative from a, from a fiscal taxation perspective. One night in Washington, he went out to a bar with two senior assistants from the Ford administration, and they got drinking and they got talking. We don't know what they were drinking, but we know what they were talking about because they kept the napkin that Arthur Laffer drew on. As the three guys are sitting in this bar talking about taxation, Laffer says, I have an idea. I'm going to draw it on this napkin. I want to share it with you. And then he went and he drew on his napkin a very typical sort of XY plot, something we all had to do in, in some course or another. And on the horizontal axis, he said, okay, so we're talking about taxation. Let's plot out the percent tax rate that the U.S. government charges us on our income. So from 0% income tax up to 100% income tax. And on the vertical scale, let's plot out the amount of money that the government collects from our taxes, from $0 up to lots and lots of dollars. He said, okay, guys, stay with me. I mean, if the government charges us 0% income tax, how much money is the government going to make? Well, zero. And he said, but think about this. If the government charges us 100% income tax, how much money is the government going to make? Also zero, because no one will work. Think about this. If we have to pay every single penny that we are ever going to earn back as tax, you know, what would be the point of working? I mean, let's just go to the beach. So what he said was, what's interesting is there's actually a curve that goes something like this that tells us that at some point, the more the government reduces the rate of taxation, the more money the government collects. And the two guys that are sitting in the bar with him said, wait a minute. That, that's, that is really interesting. Can we have that napkin? Arthur Laffer gave the napkin to the two guys who were these, these two guys. It doesn't matter. They took the napkin back. And this is the part that does matter to President Ford. They showed it to him. President Ford liked it. President Ford gave the, the napkin to the Republican National Committee who gave the napkin to a guy named Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan was thinking about running for president. He really liked that napkin sketch. He formed an economic team around what he saw in that napkin sketch. That simple little drawing on the back of the napkin became what we now know of as Reaganomics, otherwise known as supply-side economics. The idea, when someone would come to President Reagan back in the 80s and say, wait a minute, President Reagan, this doesn't make any sense. You're lowering taxation for the wealthiest people, hoping to increase the amount of money the government collects. That doesn't make any sense. This is a debate that's still going on today. Reagan would draw that picture, and the person would say, oh, I get it. Well, the thing that's really interesting about this story is the two guys back in 1974, these two guys who were sitting with Arthur Laffer that night in the bar, are these two guys. Former Vice President Cheney and former Secretary of Defense Rumsfeld were both senior aides to President Ford back in 1974. They were the three guys sitting at the table who introduced, literally, the idea of supply-side economics. Point is, whether you agree with it or not, who says a simple picture doesn't have power? It absolutely does, because we can understand it. When we can see something, when we're not just hearing it, but when we can actually see it in front of us, blocked out in a way that our visual processing system, those 75% of our neurons that are processing sensory information, can see it, we get it, and when we get it, we understand it, and then we believe in it. 
And this is the power of the kind of thing that we're learning in the arts because this is not the kind of thing that is taught in any other sort of discipline. How do we take advantage of getting people to understand the message that we're trying to convey to them? All right, well, that was Reaganomics. That's history. We're now in a very different political economic time. Another president drew this picture. Anyone want to guess who might have been? The B and the O on the bottom might be the giveaway on this one. All right, who, which president drew this picture? Barack Obama, absolutely. Turns out, President Obama used to draw all the time. Back when he was a community organizer, he drew a lot. It's not something we see a whole lot of him doing anymore. Something else that's kind of intriguing, President Obama is also left-handed, which by and of itself doesn't mean anything, but there does seem to be some connection between people who are left-handed and people who have a tendency to think about things more spatially. That's roughly 7% of the U.S. population is left-handed. About 7%. But think about this. Five of the last seven U.S. presidents have been left-handed. President Obama is left-handed. Uh, Clinton was left-handed. Papa Bush, H.W. Bush, was left-handed. President Reagan was left-handed. Interesting, Reagan was a forced righty. Reagan was naturally left-handed, but in school at that time it was forbidden to be left-handed, so he was forced to become a right-handed person, to become a righty. And President Ford was left-handed. So wait a minute. Proportionally speaking, if left-handed people only make up 7% of the population, how is it even remotely possible that five out of the last seven U.S. presidents could have been left-handed? That's only as far back as we know. Prior to that, we're not sure. Maybe there is something about having ability to think spatially that's a requirement for being able to manage an organization as complex as running a government. It's interesting, something to think about. But here's the real question. I put this challenge to President uh, Obama. I said, you know, President Obama, you know how to draw. You are clearly one of the most articulate public speakers that there has been in decades, no doubt about it. When you speak, people understand. But why is it that you're not drawing? Given the range, the incredible range of these incredibly complex problems that we're facing right now, whether it's you know, global economic meltdown, global climate change, how many wars have we got going on in the Middle East right now? I mean, you name it. Why is it that you are not using your ability to draw to share with us the clarity of what, those, what your vision is about? And I took, for example... The healthcare debate that did start two years ago, I am going to talk just for about five minutes about healthcare, not because I have any political agenda, but because I want to share with you a series of pictures and what happened with those pictures. Regardless of where any of you, if you ever think about the healthcare reform debate, regardless of where you may sit politically, we need to reform, we don't want to reform, I think we could all agree that it was never the intent of the administration to get this to happen. What we're seeing in this country in the last couple of years, the anxiety and the anger that has arisen around health care reform is staggering. Nobody anticipated that. I think, though, that the problem isn't that people necessarily disagree with what Washington is saying. I think that the problem is that nobody understands what Washington is saying. It's all just noise. So I tested it. I thought, you know what? Healthcare reform, I don't know much about healthcare reform. I'm not particularly interested, but I am worried about what's going on. So I'm going to go and I'm going to download the actual law. I want to look at the document itself that everybody's arguing about in Washington and see what it looks like. Now, the reason is I'm looking for the vision. I'm looking for the picture that's going to help me understand what is the vision behind healthcare reform. So this is a very important government document. This is you know, House Resolution 3962. This is the first piece of legislation that was signed moving health care reform forward in the U.S. Congress. Again, very important document, so of course there's not going to be any picture on the first two pages. Well, and there's no picture in the first eight pages, and there's no pictures in the first 60-some pages, and there's no pictures, and there's... There it is. 1,447 pages of bullet points. That's the law. Like that picture I showed you before. Okay, this is healthcare reform. You for it or you're against it? This is a 1,500-page document of bullet points. There is not a human being on earth that can actually read this document and make sense out of it. And yet, this is the document that we are expected to make a decision about. It's impossible. We do not think this way. We cannot think this way. I thought, what would happen if somebody tried it with pictures? What would happen? 
Nobody else was drawing the pictures. Lots of people were arguing. Lots of people were bringing guns and getting in fights at town hall meetings, but no one was drawing the pictures. I thought, well, someone's got to do it. I'll try to do it. Now, as a consultant over the last few years, I have had a chance to work with some healthcare companies, but I'm no expert. But the beauty of being a consultant, traveling around from company to company, means that you always get to meet people that are smarter than yourselves. And I knew just the guy guy from Los Angeles, Dr. Tony Jones, pretty smart guy. He's an MD doctor, and he's got an MBA. Really smart. He's got a medical background and a business background. He's worked with every healthcare company in America. I called him up and said, Tony, I'm flying down to L.A. I'm bringing printouts of all the legislation with me. Between your knowledge of all the mechanisms of healthcare in America, all of the legislation and my ability to draw the pictures, we're going to lock ourselves in your office, and we're not leaving until we've mapped out on those whiteboards a series of simple pictures that explain just what the heck is going on. That's what we did. I'm going to show you three of the pictures. They're a part of a larger set, but I just want to show you three just to show you how simple they are. Picture number one is this one. It says this, anybody who's seeking to even remotely try to understand healthcare in America has to understand one thing first. America, uniquely among any developed economy, Healthcare in America is a business. It is a profit-driven business. That's the first thing we have to understand. That is not necessarily good or not necessarily bad. That just is. That is what we have. The problem, though, it is, is not one business. It is two different businesses. One is the business of the providers, which are the people who provide healthcare, the doctors, the hospitals, drug companies, people who, and now I'm going to speak the unspeakable, something we're not allowed to say, people who make money by making us well. It's a profit-driven business. The second business is the business of the payers. These are the insurance companies. These are the people, speaking the unspeakable, who make money by managing the flow of money between us and our doctor. That's the mechanism that we face. What has happened is, the reason this is a problem, is because these two businesses have come to hate each other, absolutely detest each other. Both of them are after the same money. Both of them believe that the other one is the one that's stopping them from getting the money. Meanwhile, I, as an employed tax-paying citizen, am the only source of money going into this entire equation. So we are getting squashed, and people are going bankrupt, and businesses are going bankrupt because the only source of money is being sucked by both sides. Government sees this equation, says this is not sustainable. Government decides to step in. This administration looks at the balance and says, we believe that most of the reform needs to take place on the insurance side. So that's where we're going to go. I'm not going to say anything more about health care. I'm just going to stop there. But I would ask you this. Were those pictures understandable? Were we able to understand? And there's no politics involved. This, just, this is the way it is. So what happened is, I put together a set of those pictures. In the end, it took about 40 pictures, like the ones you just saw. It took about five minutes to go through it. I put them together in a PowerPoint presentation, and I posted them online. Within a couple of weeks, I've got about a third of a million downloads, which is not a huge number. I mean, let's face it, Lady Gaga does a video. She's got 30 million videos, you know, 30 million downloads overnight. But think about this. This is a PowerPoint document about health care. I mean, my God, what could be more boring on earth, Right? And yet somehow a third of a million people within a couple of weeks are finding it interesting to go look at this thing. And then all of a sudden, the feedback, the comments start coming in, and they're uniform. Every comment says, thank you for drawing out healthcare reform in a way that I can understand. Now that I see it, I feel like I understand enough to make an informed opinion about where do I stand. Then it got picked up on the Huffington Post. And now millions of people start to view it. And then I get a call after a couple of weeks from Fox News. Now, I had been on Fox News before. And Fox says, you know, Dan, since you are clearly one of America's leading thinkers on health care reform, <laughs> would, would you be willing to come on air and share with the Fox viewership your series of pictures explaining health care? And I thought, absolutely, because if there's anybody who really needs to understand it, it's probably many of the people who are watching Fox. So... <laughs> So what was really remarkable is that at so 5, 5 p.m. Eastern Time in New York, they gave me seven minutes, Fox News, seven minutes to go through the series of pictures. To Fox's credit, no spin, 
no commentary other than here's, you know, thank you, clear explanation of healthcare. Pretty interesting. But what happened next is where things get really cool. The next day, I get a call, another call. I get a call from the people behind here, the people in there. And they say, is this Dan? Yes. Are you the one who drew those napkins about health care? Yes. We need to talk. Can you come to D.C.? Yes, I certainly can come to D.C. So I've had a chance now to work on a couple of occasions with the White House Office of Communications, doing my little drawings, showing them how to do little drawings. And something that started now, it's about five months ago, is whitehouse.gov slash whiteboard. If anybody's interested, uh, this is a project I've had an opportunity to help them out with. Austin Gouldsby, who is the head of economic advisors to the president, will go online. He goes on video in front of his whiteboard and will take some complex economic policy issue, like the Laffer curve that I showed you a moment ago, and will draw it out. It's pretty compelling. It is a way to begin to understand not only when people start harping on us about health care reform or changes in politics or how we should be thinking about taxation, but also to think literally and viscerally about the power of these simple pictures. And I've got to ask, why was nobody doing this before? It's not like rocket science. This isn't something that comes completely out of left field. The visual explanation of idea, again, is what we know how to do who have training in the arts. How would I explain this in another way? That's what we know how to do. I believe this. The ability to draw out our idea. It doesn't matter if it looks like crap. It doesn't matter how, how good it is. The ability to take our idea and convey it in a way that other people are going to be able to understand it by seeing it is the future. Absolutely is. It's not just a language issue. It's not just a cultural issue. This is the issue of understanding complexity and making it clear. This is what we know how to do. I think it's time that you should do some drawing with me. Now, I brought along some paper napkins. Did everybody get a paper napkin? What we're going to do now is I've been up here telling you, yeah, we need to draw, we need to draw. Okay, but now for the next 15 minutes, and then we'll wrap this thing up, I want to show you whether you think you can draw or not. In fact, if you think you can't, I'm going to show you that you can. Not only that you can draw, but you can draw a picture to explain any idea that you can conceive of. And here's the way we do it. I'll wait just a moment as people get their napkins. If you get nothing out of this discussion tonight, at least you'll get a napkin that you can show to someone else and say, look, I know how to draw a picture of anything. Here's the way we do it. We're facing a problem or an idea, something we want to express to someone or to ourselves. We don't ask, uh, what would I draw a picture of? We don't say, uh, I can't draw. We just do this. And, and please do this with me. In the upper left-hand corner, just draw a circle. Just draw a circle. It doesn't even matter what it is. We're not going to let our brain get in our way. We're going to let our visual system take over. Draw a circle and then give it a name. And let's, in this case, let's call it me. Now, we've just done a couple of things. Number one is we've broken the terror of the white canvas. We now have got a markdown. We didn't have to think about it. And the first thing that we named it will be the thing that's top of mind when we start thinking about the problem. And always that will be something self-reflexive. It will be today or it will be, um, I don't know, my dog, my house. But most likely it'll be me. Because the way the human brain works is whenever there's something going on around us, the first thing we do is think, how does it impact me? So there's us. Now for a little extra credit, go ahead and if you want, make it look a little bit like you. And now, we're going to do something else. I want you to draw a second circle and make this one bigger. Go ahead and take up a bunch of your napkin with the second circle, and we're going to give this one a name too. And this one will be called my problem. Now, something else really interesting is happening. Our brain is able to look at these two pictures, and a completely different set of processes are taking place than if we just heard someone talking about them. Because we can see them. Our brain is starting to anticipate and wonder, what is the relationship between those two circles, and why is one big and why is one small? There is a rule. I call it the, visual, the rule, unwritten rule of visual problem solving number two. First one is we can solve any problem with a picture. The second one is why. The more human your picture, the more human your response. What I mean by this is the following. Our brain 
is literally hardwired to process information visually in a very specific way, which is common to all of us. When we draw a simple picture and we draw it the right way, we can pretty much guarantee that we're going to feed it right into someone else's brain in a way that it will seamlessly just get. And here's what's going to happen. Before we go back to drawing on a napkin, we need to do a really quick little test. And it's not a test I want anyone to worry about. There won't be any... I'm not just going to show you a series of four pictures. They're going to go in sequence, A, B, C, D. They're very simple. They're all going to look more or less like this one. What I'd like you to do is just notice that there are some things in this picture. Does everyone notice that there are some things in this picture? doesn't matter what they are. Does everybody see that there are some things in this picture? This is picture A. I'm now going to jump ahead to picture B. And I'm going to go back and forth a couple of times. This is picture B, the second in the series. Let me go back to A. This is A, now to B. And I'll do it one more time. A to B. Does everybody see that some things have changed? Okay. How much time do you think might have passed between A and B, roughly? Some seconds? A few seconds? Okay. A few seconds. I'm now going to go on to C. Oops, exactly. Does everybody see that something else has happened? And now we're going to go on to the last picture, D. Does everybody see that something else has happened? Okay, how much time do you think, I'm going to go back to C now, how much time do you think might have passed between C and D? Hours. Okay, rhetorical question, how do we know any of that? I didn't say a word about any of this. How did we know any of that? And, and on top of that, look, let me go back to picture C. I like this one a little better. Look what, how simple these pictures are. In fact, what I'd like you to pay attention to is what is not in these pictures. There is no color. There is no shading. There are no fancy three-dimensional effects. There's nothing except some black and white lines and some little stick figures. And yet, believe it or not, between those four pictures, we just saw our entire visual system kick into gear. That was like going through a little scale model of what happens thousands of times a second in our mind, in our visual system, every time our eyes are open. We are processing the world around us visually exactly the same way we just did this with those four little drawings. What is happening? A little bit of neurobiology for a moment. There is too much visual information out there all the time for our brain to process. Our brain can't keep up. So our brain has evolved to be extremely efficient at selecting the information that it's going to pay attention to and building the models of what we see in our mind. Thousands of times a second this is happening. It only can happen... Because our mind has evolved to not try to address the entire world in front of us all at once, but instead to break it up into different work streams, handle each one of those work streams independently, and then stitch them together at the end. So for anybody who's ever done any kind of computer programming, the way the visual system works is it works both in parallel and in serial. So a series of steps happen, and then eventually we go from the whole world we see to the image that we believe we're seeing in our mind. There are six of those pathways. I'd like to share with you something I call the six by six rule. This is something I created based on this kind of, to me, sort of breathtaking insight that said, well, if our visual system breaks the visual signal up into six pathways and addresses them one by one, and that's all that it does, it doesn't do anything else, then I thought it stands to reason that we ought to be able to draw a picture of anything not by having to know how to draw hundreds of different pictures, but by knowing how to draw six. One picture that feeds each one of the pathways exactly the information it wants and only the information it wants. And then let our mind stitch them all together. So what we're going to do now on our napkin is we are from now on, whenever we want to draw a picture of an idea or of a problem, a way to do it, not the only way, but a way to do it, is to do exactly what our visual processing system does all by itself. We take our problem. We don't address it all at once. We're not going to worry about the whole big problem. We're going to slice it up into six slices, just like a pizza. And we're going to address them one by one. And for the next few minutes, that's what we're going to do. I'm going to take you through each six, each one of the six. It's going to take just a few minutes. And then I'll show you how they can all come together to help us draw a picture of anything. So, slice number one has the really highly scientific name called the what pathway. 
Literally, that is the name that vision scientists use to describe what this pathway in our visual system is doing. It is the what pathway. This is the part of our visual system that recognizes objects. When we were looking at the picture, this is the part that might say that was a dog, those are birds, that's people at a table. This, I'm going to hold this up. Does everybody know what this is? It's a bottle of water. Our what pathway knew that. It recognizes the shape. It's seen it before. We all know what this is. That's a what. It's a pen. Our visual system looks at it. Our, the what pathway does one thing and one thing only. It identifies the things that we're looking at. It doesn't know where they are. It doesn't, it doesn't have the ability to count them. It doesn't know anything about them except what they are and what they look like. The what pathway. So, slice number one, go ahead and write who and what in that first slice. This is the first thing that our brain does when we look at the world, is it identifies the objects that are in front of us. It has to set the groundwork. What are the pieces that I'm playing with? The picture that we would want to draw when we want to represent that part of our thinking process is what I'm going to call a simple portrait. And what I mean by that is, this is a picture of a man, this is a picture of a woman, this is a picture of a car, this is a picture of a house, this is a box. The simplest possible representation we can of just that object. What is the least amount of information we need to convey to say to our mind, that's what the thing is? Let me give you an example. This is a chart. Believe it or not, this is called the Wong-Baker Faces Pain Rating Scale. This was invented by two doctors, Dr. Wong and Dr. Baker, for use in emergency rooms and hospitals where there's a language difficulty, where there's a language barrier. The thought being, when when a patient comes into the room, if the doctor can't immediately tell what the problem is with the person, they point to various parts of the patient's body and indicate that the person might point to the chart. And thus, the doctor is able to make a very basic initial diagnosis of what's wrong with the person. Now, what's remarkable is that when doctors Wong and Baker put this together, they tested it in every country on earth, and they found something remarkable. These simple little pictures turned to be culturally, socially neutral. They tested more or less the same in every, every culture on earth. Anyone could look at this and recognize that this means something very different than this. And every culture can recognize that it means the same thing to each different culture. Point is, here in the West, we have a tendency when we want to represent that someone's happy to focus on their mouth. In Japan, for example... When you want to indicate that someone's happy, you focus on the eyes. And then you can see that they've accounted for this. Six little portraits that account in a brute force fashion for just about every conceivable level of pain or not pain that a human can experience. Slice number two, I'd like you to write down how much. This is the part of our visual processing system that likes to count. And it turns out that we're really good at counting. We're really good at counting up to five. For most people, if we were to make little piles of marbles or pennies or something like that, and we had two here and three there and four there and five, for most of us, the largest pile that we could look at and know how many it was without having to stop and count would be five. Once we get to six, we have to stop and count, and the brain does not want to stop. It hates it. It wants to just get information in as fast as it can. So it actually turns out that the way we really count is one, two, three, four, five, a few, many, lots, and a zillion. That's the way we really count. We, when, when people start throwing numbers out at us, millions of this, trillions of that, billions of that, we have no concept what those numbers mean. The human brain does not have the ability to recognize or understand that there's any difference between a million and a trillion and a billion unless those pictures are drawn, the numbers are drawn. We can see the difference. So the picture we draw when we want to reflect number is a chart. It could be a bar chart. It could be a pie chart. A visual representation of number. Here is a chart that shows the price of tea in China. The price of tea around the world. Can anybody tell me, if this represents the price of tea, where right now is tea the least expensive in China? Where is tea right now the most expensive? Again, rhetorical question, how do we know that? There are no numbers listed on those charts. How do we know that? Well, because one's bigger. Our eye loves to look at numbers in ratios when we can see them compared to each other. We're moving on to slice number three now. So now what we've done, our brain so far has identified an object and then it's counted it. Boy, we're really good so far. 
Now we've got to figure out where the thing is. So now the where pathway kicks in. This is the pathway that cannot recognize what an object is. It cannot count it. All it does is recognize the distance of the object from us and the distance of the object from some other thing. This is the distance measuring part of our visual system. The where pathway. When we want to reflect the where of our idea, we draw a little map. And what I mean by that is is I could tell you that this X marks the buried treasure, and I could tell you that this box represents our house. Here's the river, and here's the path that leads to the treasure. Now, if I gave you that map, could you find the treasure? Maybe if it had a little bit more detail, but probably yes. But in that map, there is actually no treasure drawn there. There's not even a house drawn there. It doesn't matter. What the where pathway, what a map is trying to do is show the relationship in space between things. A map is useful to show where the pieces fit together in a, a machine. A map is useful to show where the pieces fit together in an organization. A map can be used to show where the pieces fit together in a concept. All just simple little maps. All they're showing is the relationship of these things in space. Now, here's where the mind gets really trippy. These three slices were happening more or less at the same time. Bottle, this distance, one. Imagine what would happen if you were looking at this bottle. Okay, let's look at this bottle just for a second. We all agree it's a bottle. We all agree it's, there's one of them. And we're all going to agree on the distance it is from us right now. Now, watch what's going to happen. Something's happening. The bottle's, the bottle's not changing, but the bottle's position in space relative to us is changing. I've got to ask you something. Is this bottle right here the same one as this one? It is. So our brain can't account for that. How does it think that the same bottle is in two different wares at the same time? Well, it says it doesn't. Time must have passed. The only way for that bottle to be in two different places is to not be there at the same time. It turns out that the number one way we recognize the passage of time is by watching things move. There's an entire part of our brain in our visual system that is dedicated to to monitoring whether it's light out or dark out. That's what resets our internal clock. This is the when slice. The picture that we draw when we want to reflect when things happen is a very simple little timeline. This happened, then that happened, then that happened. Long time ago, President Kennedy said, you know, as a nation, we're going there. Pretty clear vision statement of where. We're going to the moon. Really good. Everybody can see it. Everybody knows where we're going. Then he said, and we're going to do it in nine years. And if you worked at NASA at the time, you said, what? We're doing it when? Oh, we know perfectly well where we're going. No problem there. When are we going to do that? The picture that you have to draw, if you're part of the problem, is not where you're going, but when do you need everything done to get there, is a timeline. This is the timeline, the very first timeline that the the engineers at NASA started to draw out to say, when do we need to get everything done to reach that goal on time? If we add everything up, things are starting to get really complicated now. Our brain is starting to really light up. It's putting all the pieces together. So this is the how slice, the fifth one. This is how things work. We're actually visualizing. We're seeing cause and effect. So what I mean by that is, when I showed you the four pictures earlier, we had the little girl and we had her dog. What we noticed when I went to picture C and everybody said, oops, was we saw something take place. We saw if that dog sees those birds, that dog is going to run towards those birds. And if the dog hits that baby carriage, then those parents are going to panic. What we're actually seeing in how is cause and effect. This thing causes that to happen by what we see. The picture that we want to draw when we want to represent how does something work is what we call a flowchart. This happens, which causes this to happen, which causes this to happen, or maybe that. A little flowchart. And now we're coming to the last one. Before we get there, just so we know what's happening, I'm going to show you a flowchart of how does the human brain work. Sensory information comes in through all of our senses. It gets processed in our reptilian brain, and it comes out in the form of the behaviors that we take. We humans 
are particularly lucky or blessed or evolved, however you want to think about it, because we have this really fancy neocortex sitting on top that allows us to do a whole lot more sophisticated processing and therefore take a whole lot more sophisticated behavior. That's how the human brain works. Simplest flowchart out there. So how does all this come together? What is it that our mind really wants to know? What our brain really wants to know, the reason why we went through the effort of looking at what's there, how many of them are there, where are they, when do they happen, and how do they interact, is because what we really want to know is why are things like this? Why is the world the way it is? The picture that we draw to represent this final slice, the why slice, is the simple combination of everything we've seen before. It's what I call a visual equation. A visual statement of why things are the way they are. And in this case, the visual statement that we might take from looking at those four pictures is that dogs clearly love birds, but birds do not love dogs. And now we've got a little operating model, a why, that we carry around with us. And it turns out, from those simple little pictures that lead us to Birds love dogs, but dogs don't love birds. That's the way we learn everything in our life. Every single thing that we know that we have witnessed goes through the same process. What we see, we measure it in those six ways, and we build laws about why the world is the way it is. The picture that we want to draw when we know why something is that way is what I call a little visual equation, like dogs love birds, birds don't love dogs. We could represent it by something like a square plus a triangle equals a circle kind of an operating rule of the universe. And you might think, well, yeah, but it just isn't true. And I'd say, no, no, it's it's true. It turns out that, you know, in project management and in math and in engineering, the symbol of triangle represents what? Does anybody know? Represents change. So this is true. A square plus change does give us a circle. So now we've got a very simple visual equation that summarizes something that we know. Rule of the universe. I'm going to end with this, and then I think we have a little bit more time if anybody has any questions or additional thoughts. But the real question is, okay, so why do we have this sophisticated visual system? I mean, where did it come from? Why do we, even wait? Why do we spend so much of our mental capacity processing the world around us visually when we don't use it when it comes to cognitive processing or we don't believe we do? How come people in Washington aren't drawing pictures? How come people in economics aren't drawing pictures? How come people in... Medicine very rarely draw pictures. How come people who are making policy don't draw pictures? How come those people don't do what people in the arts do all of the time? Well, because we're more highly evolved. Because we know a visual system is there to protect us from the things that are trying to eat us. Millions of years ago, that's where it came from. Well, why do we still have it today? To try to protect us from all the PowerPoint that's going to try to eat us these days. That's why we have a visual processing system. And with that, I would like to thank you again for all of your time. I hope this made sense to you. And as you start thinking about any problem in the future, go ahead and refer back to your six slices on the napkin, and I guarantee you can find a way to draw it out. So with that, thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.